0: Good morning. Our reading today is from 1st Timothy, beginning chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of, your, of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan That they may learn not to blaspheme first of all then i urge that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are thankful for this uh, this day that you have given us, a day of rest and of worship, a day of beauty that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and are equipped as your people, that we gather together to sing your praises and delight in you and are reminded of how you delight in us. We open your word now to us that we would hear and believe in Jesus' name. Amen. If I can ask one person to do me a favor, uh, will, you, will somebody close that door back there to the conference room? It's, a, it's open and available if anybody needs to use it for a cry room, but I'm getting some feedback, I think, in there, and I can hear it up here, my voice. If you're joining us uh, and have not been in the last week's sermon at least, and uh, maybe are not familiar with the book of 1 Timothy, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to his apprentice Timothy. Timothy uh, was serving the church as a a leader, an elder, uh, a pastor in the city of of Ephesus. And Paul is writing to his apprentice to teach him some important things that he needs to pass on to others about how church life should function, he calls it the household of God, using an illustration of uh, of, of family life to describe what the church is. It's interesting that in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to that same church in Ephesus. He describes the church as the body of Christ. So these illustrations that are familiar to us of life, of family, of body, are are essential to forming that church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is one of those culturally significant cities in uh, Paul's time, kind of like New York is for us today. So it's like writing to the church in New York and uh, how New York tends to go or maybe in our context how Los Angeles churches tend to go is how churches around the country tend to follow. Sometimes it takes a few years or even a decade or more, but these things catch on and they, and they follow on. So, so Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus to teach them how church is to work and the, the illustration he gives is this organic kind of illustration, Of life, of life, a body, of life being a household, of life that's engaging and sometimes complex, addressing difficult issues at times. And again, if you were here last week, you know last week we talked about the topics of sex and sexuality. And next week we're going to continue through chapter 2 and it looks at some uh, gender role issues. Questions. You can't live in today's culture and not see these two things as like huge boulders in the way of, uh, of, of the path of understanding this letter to, um, uh, to, to Timothy, the church in Ephesus. But in between these two boulders that immediately jump out at the reader, if you read it all the way through, which we did the first week we started uh, the study... In between these two boulders is this, uh, this gem. It's like a diamond. That's difficult to see this passage that we read today because it is something of a, a key in understanding Paul's purpose in writing to the church in Ephesus. Paul's purpose in instructing the church through his apprentice Timothy. And what he tells Timothy, he says, pass on to other faithful men who will be faithful to pass it on to others not just to men he's speaking of, he's also talking to women, and later in the letter he talks about older women mentoring younger women, wise men and women, leaders in the church. And this passage in particular is giving leaders a road map of what that will look like. Now there are still a number of little rocks in the road In understanding just this passage, there are a number of things that kind of jump out at us and may cause problems in understanding the purpose of this passage. Kind of like flashing lights that catch our attention, but they they may not be the thing that uh, is what our attention should be drawn to in this passage. One of the questions is, what does it mean that Timothy received this prophecy verse 18 in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you another question around this is uh, what is the question of the testimony later in verse uh, 5 in the passage excuse me verse 6 in the passage the testimony given at the proper time still another question here is um who are the rulers and kings that we're to pray for? And then maybe the one that jumped out at you most is, what does it mean for somebody to be handed over to Satan? The end of verse 20. Now, some of you are a little bit more theologically familiar. Verse 4 it talks about God who desires all people to be saved. Challenges our understanding of God's will and His sovereignty. What do we do with that passage? And uh, those familiar with a concept of atonement, ransom, verse 6 has an interesting statement about Christ being our ransom. Now, I want to set some of these questions aside and just answer them briefly because I think that all of these things, like I said, are somewhat like flashing lights that vie for our attention but really aren't the main focus of this passage. And instead, like a a funnel, the apostle is drawing Timothy's eyes to focus on two particular things, actually a contrast of two particular things, and you hear them repeated, particularly in chapter 2, verses uh, 2, down to, to, down to verse 6. And the two things that are competing is, is this concept of the word all, or this, this use of the word all. And how that is contrasted with the word one. Or multiple times the word all is used to describe God's plan of redemption and purpose. And then twice, repeated in a a familiar kind of uh, language to Paul, Paul talks about there being this oneness to it. There is one God, one Lord and Father of all, he talks about in his letter to Ephesians another time, and here he says there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And in that context, in this overall understanding of the passage, we have the all in the one, we have something else emerge, and that is and that is what some of the false teachers in the city of Ephesus were emphasizing, which was this an exclusivity, an exclusivity to God and his people keeping some out and including others probably along the lines of ethnicity or certain religious practices that had been common for the Jewish people. So it's not surprising that Paul then focuses his attention and even finishes this passage by saying, I am a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth Then. The Gentiles, maybe a familiar phrase for some of you, not for others. To be Gentile was to be not Jew. In other words, to be Gentile was everyone except the Jews. And so yet another reference to all of humanity, all people. And that's where I want us to focus our attention, but I don't want us to be bogged down on some of these other things. So let me just go through those. What is the prophecy that he's referring to. Well, later in the letter, Paul talks about the elders, other elders laying hands on Timothy to appoint him to the work of elder and pastor, teacher, and an elder in the church. And it says that that was accompanied by prophecy. Now, in the early church, in the time of Jesus, Prophecy was much more familiar than it is now. Sometimes today you hear people say that they are a prophet or they got a word from the Lord. Well, if they're reading from the Bible, that word is from the Lord. If they're just saying it themselves, they may be convicted of something by God, but it's not necessarily from the Lord. But in Jesus' time, one of the ways that elders and teachers and particularly apostles were identified was by an actual prophet saying this person is equipped for the ministry. This person is somebody who is going to serve in the church and be a leader and a teacher and even a writer of Scripture. Jesus himself is identified by prophets, the prophet John the Baptist, when he's baptized in the Jordan River. And his ministry is authenticated by those prophecies. Now there's a period of transition that's happening in this early church where these people are authenticated by that prophecy. But that doesn't mean that it continues to this day and that a prophet still anoints a minister for the work of evangelism or for the work of the pastoral ministry today. But still continuing in this practice, we do practice that elders lay hands on those who are appointed to uh, serve as elders or pastors in the church, as a way of separating them, identifying them, authenticating them. So it's helpful to understand just a little bit of context. It's not that confusing. It's identified later on prophecies in a similar way. The testimony. The testimony is a little bit more complex, but probably the testimony is the witness of Christ himself and the witness of Christ's work that is now God come down to earth. Born of a virgin, suffered and died for our sins and then rose again from the dead. Jesus Christ is the witness, the testimony that is credible in a court of law testimony is valid and that's the testimony that paul is given and 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 timothy is giving as well but particularly it's the testimony of jesus's work for the salvation of people now the third one i just want to mention here quickly and then we'll cover the rest of this in the context of the sermon is the notion of being handed over to satan verse 20 it says that Hymenaeus and alexander whom i have Handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme as a euphemism that Paul uses elsewhere. And it means to be excommunicated from the church, to be outside of the church, put outside of the church. And I want to just highlight a couple of things here and then maybe come back to it a little bit later. He's talking about leaders of the church in particular, those who have a special influence over God's people and have a higher level of accountability in what they teach and what they practice. They were teaching things that were adding burdens onto people that God wasn't adding to people. And they were detracting from these two other things that are the focus of our attention. One is that salvation is found in Christ Jesus and in Him alone. One mediator between God and man. The exclusivity of Christ's work and the inclusivity of the message of the gospel, which goes to all people. And anytime someone deviates from that in their teaching, we should call that person to account. The church is responsible to hold people accountable to this teaching. Anytime we isolate the gospel and say it's not for some group of people based on race or ethnicity or language or uh, physical ability or even particular sins given preference over others, as we looked at last week. we need to call people to account. And as members of a church, one way that you can call them to account is to leave the church. But before leaving the church, that is, teaching apostasy, blasphemy. We should work through the structures of the church to bring correction, and namely in our structure of government, our form of government, through the elders of the church, the leaders of the church. That there should be a plurality of leaders, and that's why I'm accountable to elders up in New Life in Escondido until we have elders who are sharing the responsibility of overseeing and leading in our church here. And call people to account, and this concept of being handed over to Satan is never to be taken lightly. And it's always for the purpose of restoration. Of bringing back to the faith. Of understanding that something that we've done has crossed a line. And it's not acceptable to continue to do that. We do this in other parts of life. If someone has reached a certain level in a classroom, they're sent out of the classroom. When certain things are done inside the context of a marriage, there's a a legal separation, a godly separation that may be appropriate, a form of discipline, but that again is usually almost always intended to bring the two back together. Sometimes things are irreconcilable. And likewise in the church, at times things rise to a level where someone has to be put out with the hope of them coming back. There's a great example of this, Pastor Jack Miller who started the New Life Movement of Churches, New Life Churches by the way, you can see them all over the country. Uh, not all of them they're called New Life or this but hundreds of at least dozens of churches, probably hundreds of churches are titled named New Life after the work of Jack Miller 1960s, 1970s. Uh and and there's a, there's a great uh, story of his own daughter, Barbara, who rejected the faith. And painful as it was, the church uh, excommunicated her. And he wrote a book called Come Back Barbara on the difficulty of that process. And now many, books, uh, many of the books that are by Jack Miller have actually been um, curated, pulled together by... His daughter Barbara, who did come back to the church and receive was received back into the fellowship of the church it's not a tool that we use lightly in the church I've never used it, but still it should be mentioned and uh, and addressed here because because he he addresses it and uses the uh, the phrase but with those three things kind of set aside or maybe addressed briefly, I want to look uh, at this The rest of the passage, really kind of what I see as the heart of this passage, and that is beginning in verse 2, he talks about urging that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. There's that phrase, all people. A lot of people come to this passage and look at it and say, this is an instruction to pray. Look, it even unpacks the types of prayers, supplications, prayers, intercessions, And thanksgivings. And those are helpful words that describe prayer, but in many cases, those are just sort of parallel words. And this is a common form of of language that Paul uses and that was common in the day in Paul's time of using parallel language to say almost the same thing. And so we don't need to parse out what supplications, prayers, and intercessions uh, might mean differently. All of those are a form of petition to God us coming to God and saying, God, will you provide this? Now, the temptation of our prayers is oftentimes to say, God, will you provide this for me? Did you notice I left that off a minute ago? For me. Will you provide this for me? But Paul, Paul doesn't say that. He says that we would offer these prayers for who all people For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. And kings here is not necessarily describing who the all people are, but Kings is pointing us to the nature of all kingdoms. For the kings who were ruling over the people who were in Ephesus, which the king at that time was the emperor of Rome, who had all kinds of power, but also for other kings throughout history that we would pray for them, but it's not exclusive to that, and it's a com- command to pray for all people regardless, as I said before, of race, ethnicity, but also with regard to class or ability or social position. Sometimes when we pray, we pray first for ourselves and then we pray for the people that we love. And then we we'll stop there. But our prayers are powerful weapons of warfare. Paul says, use that language with Timothy. Fight the good fight engage in the warfare. Don't pull back from it. Prayers are important tools, instruments, weapons of warfare. And by those prayers, we impact cultures and lives in a way that not only impacts us, but impacts other people. So he says, "Pray pray for all people, not just yourself, not just the people you love. Pray for all people. And in that, in that, we may lead peaceful and quiet life, lives, Godly and dignified, in every way. Now prayer is powerful, sometimes is powerful for reasons that we don't initially see. Prayer is powerful in that God chooses to work through prayers. To change lives. And it does start with our own life. When we pray, when we pray particularly for people who we disagree with, who we may even consider an enemy, and even pray for people who have power over us to bring persecution to us, it does something to our heart. It changes our posture toward a person. It calms some of the anger and desire to see justice immediately done. And it helps us to realize that we are not responsible for changing that person. But it's God who is powerful enough to and responsible ultimately for changing another person's heart and mind. And when we pray for those who stand against us, it has the effect of calming our anxieties, It has the effect of increasing our faith, trust that God is powerful over these things. And it helps us turn back to God to look further into his word, into his character, into his purposes to help us to understand how we should live our lives. That we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. Now, I think that there's two things happening In this, one is that we're praying for those leaders to establish a system of justice and government that allows us to lead peaceful and quiet lives. But also that God would give us strength to endure suffering and persecution and even wrongdoing in a peaceful and quiet way that doesn't seek retribution first. But seeks to see other people's hearts transformed by the gospel first. In trusting that it's God who puts these leaders into place, not just in his church, but in all of humanity, and that those leaders are ultimately under God's authority. And that God is not unable to effect change in those leaders, nor is he unable to to pick the right people for the job. Sometimes we think, well, if God was just a better HR rep, he would put better people in position, in these positions of power. But but like so many other things, when we allow that thought to creep into our minds, it diminishes our view of God. It helps us to create a different God in our minds that is not a real God, a God that is less powerful than the real God, it is a, a taming of God, a domesticating of God. But God says he can't be tamed. He can't be domesticated. And so when we do that, we don't change God. All we do is we stand in a different position before God. God. We enter into a dangerous place because we aren't worshiping the real God anymore. We're worshiping a God of our own creation. An idol created in our hearts. One theologian said our hearts are like idol factories. We're constantly building gods that don't exist. And then we complain about the God that doesn't exist when he doesn't answer our prayers. And we say the real God can't really exist because the God we created doesn't do what we want him to do. But here's who the real God is, the one God, one God, verse 5, one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's the testimony given at the proper time. Maybe he's referencing the right time. At just the right time in history, Jesus came to save sinners. The testimony at the proper time, the testimony that Christ Jesus is the one way of salvation is central to the Christian message. And the parallel track is that that message of salvation is for all the nations and all of the people. Now you may say to me, but that's exclusive. That's the primary concern about uh, Christianity and other religions is that they are exclusive. That surely good people in other parts of the world will be saved if they're just good enough. What do we do with the person who has never heard of Christ Jesus? There are a couple of major issues with this that we have to be honest about. Well the first one is that there's not a blending of religions that we have the authority to do. And a lot of people want to present the idea that we're all paths lead to God and they're just a different view of who God is which is fine in some Eastern religions. I'm not uh, familiar at, in depth with all of the Eastern religions, but I believe Buddhism tends to promote this. It's sort of all wisdom is good wisdom and, and leads to God. But when you come to other religions like Christianity, like Judaism, which I would propose is Christianity just without receiving Christ, When you come to Islam and other uh, world religions, if that religion itself teaches something that's mutually exclusive to other things, it's doing an injustice to that religion and the people of that religion to just round off the corners and say, well, they're just mistaken at that point. You have to take at face value what the religion teaches. Now, face value doesn't mean just a simplicity, and that's why I hesitate to even go into detail on in Buddhism, because I know that when people have a cursory understanding of religion, oftentimes it's more dangerous than if they have no knowledge of the religion itself. But there is a, 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 an honesty that we have to have when we come to religions and say, if it claims to be exclusive, we don't have an authority to round off the edges and create something else. And Christianity does present this I- exclusivity. And here it says, there is one way of salvation, one mediator between God and men. This morning we forgot to close the curtain. You got to see behind the curtain this morning, right? Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and men. And that's using Old Testament imagery. It's the notion of the priest who offered sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people to God. So in the Old Testament system that God provides, the people can't go to God with a freedom that we experience now, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but they have to go through a mediator to God, and the priest serves as the mediator. There are all kinds of images that were built into the temple structure, and into the life of the people that portrayed, communicated this, that even the concept of God being holy means that he's set apart behind the curtain something different and that people needed a way to come to him. Now, there's also all kinds of imagery in the Old Testament of God coming to people and setting up his dwelling in their midst so that he was a part of their family life, their household life. And so this tabernacle that's constructed in the desert wilderness while they're, they're waiting to enter into their promised land is full of this imagery of both a presence of God and a, a, a God who is there with his family and an otherness of God, a God who is behind the curtain, a God who is holy while people are not. And the way that people can come to God and gain access to God, in particular, is by the offering of sacrifice. The offering of sacrifice to atone or pay the ransom price for sin. To make clean what is unclean so it can enter into the clean. Don't get into our bed, we say to our kids at the end of the night when they've been playing baseball all day and climbing on rocks and in the gym and covered with chalk. You are unclean and our bed is clean. But as soon as they take the shower, come on in, at least for a little while. That concept God presented to people in the wilderness in a very physical way so that we would understand what the work of Christ is on our behalf in a way that is a greater spiritual concept than, than we can fully understand. And so when God gives that tabernacle and calls some things unclean, even some animals unclean to eat, don't let these things come in, when he creates the, 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 uh, the structure, when he creates certain washing practices that people have to do those things aren't the end in themselves they are teaching tools so we can understand the work that christ does on our behalf because jesus is the one sacrifice and the one priest who is able to offer that sacrifice on our behalf as the mediator to god and it's interesting that he's called the one mediator who gave himself as the atoning sacrifice or ransom for all. Clear Old Testament reference. Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice that allows us to come in behind the curtain. There's nothing secret back there by the curtain. Behind the curtain, by the way, you can go back there and see it anytime. We just close it for aesthetic purposes. But in the temple... There was that holiness of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? The temple curtain was torn into two miraculously, as one of the significant signs that now people who are in Christ, who have been cleansed by Christ in his atoning sacrifice, can enter into God's presence. There's no more separation if we are in Christ. And that offer now extends out to all people and not just the Jews. Now really, if you look back over redemptive history, that was true all through Israel's history. And one of the big hurdles for the Jewish people was this concept that God's blessing was not just for them, but it was for all nations. It was a blessing that they were given so that they could bless other nations. Genesis 12, 3, with the beginning of this this story, the story of redemption, when God calls a particular family to himself, Abraham and Sarah, a household of two people. They have no children yet at this time. And he says, I will bless you. And your descendants, I will give you a household, descendants that number more than the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. Psalm 2, right at the beginning, set the tone of the Psalter. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And yet throughout the prophets, we see the purpose of God unfolded. That the gospel, the good news of salvation, is not just for the people of Israel, but for all nations. In many other places, and I don't have time to go into all of them in, uh, in, in detail, but throughout the Old Testament, of the call to go to all nations with the gospel. And this is a place that I... Drew our attention to earlier and want to wrap up things and draw our attention back to. I just want to read verses, um, verses 3, 4, and uh, 3 and 4 particularly. This is good and, ple- and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It says, There's one God, one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all? Paul says, "I was appointed preacher and apostle for all those non-Jews." And he said earlier in verse one, "We are to pray and offer these prayers on behalf of all people." And the question this comes up right away is: Is does that mean that God uh, wills for all people, or, or is he is he uh, is is he selective in, in who's going to be uh, saved? And this is a, this is a different que- difficult question. I want to first begin uh, by, by addressing the question of, is the gospel for all people? And the answer, the short answer is that the gospel is for all people. The gospel is the salvation that's offered by God for all nations, for all people. It's the only way of salvation. To say anything else is to negate the power of God to reach all people. And yet the purpose of Paul writing this is not to say that all people will be saved or to promote a form of universalism. Or even to say that God is not powerful enough to turn people's hearts. What Paul is saying is that the gospel is going to all the peoples of the earth, regardless of their race. And yet all people have turned away from God and rejected God in who he is. We've inherited this from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and there is no one righteous, not one. No one is good enough to say, God, you should love me. In fact, it's fairly arrogant to say, God, you have to love me. All of us have to understand that we have not followed, not even met our own expectations, much less God's expectations. All of us should realize that in and of ourselves there is nothing in us that makes us turn to God because God at, at the same time is both the gracious and loving creator of all humanity and yet also the good judge and just ruler of all creation. In other words, we can't demand that justice be done without, without ourse- realizing that our, we ourselves are deserving of that justice. But at the same time, we should not see God as some someone who wills or takes pleasure, I should say, who who will, who takes, let me rephrase this a little bit, takes pleasure in uh, in the, the just justice that has to be done without compassion for those who are standing in justice. Remember that those were excommunicated from the church, not just out of an ill will for those people, but for a purpose of bringing them back. There's a helpful passage from Ezekiel, actually two passages from Ezekiel that talk about this. That God himself, through his prophet Ezekiel, mouthpiece of God says, Have I, God, any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them. He shall die. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, o house of Israel, is my way not just? Is not your ways? Uh, is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. And then Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven, he says, "Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked." but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Now you notice a couple things there. One is that his language is directed at his own people. In today's language, we might compare the house of Israel with the church. It's a warning for us to turn away from our wickedness because God's justice Is to all people and he's fair. At the same time, we should see how God can and does and is powerful enough to control salvation for all and yet doesn't delight in executing justice. A judge who laughs when he sentences another person is not a compassionate judge. It has no business being on the seat of justice. God doesn't present himself in that way, and yet he can presents himself as consistent in his justice. And we tend to be the fickle ones who say, I want your justice done when it affects other people, but I don't want your justice done when it affects me. I want your justice done when it affects somebody who, um, who I don't care about but not somebody who I love and care about. But in this dichotomy, in this difficulty, Christ Jesus enters in and he frees us from this bondage of being sinners who can't who can't enter into the presence of God, who can't enter into the holy of holies. and yet people who know they need the love of God and want to enter into that people whom God created in his image whom he wants to bring into his presence and if you want to come back to the comparative religions you look at all those other religions all of the other religions almost all of them anyway world religions major world religions the thing that they have in common is an ethical system, a way that we don't just fight with each other and kill one another all the time. But the thing that's unique about Christianity that it provides this mediator to reconcile the conundrum of the need for justice and mercy. And that's unique. That's very unique. And it, it transforms the way we see Christianity and takes it out of this world of religion and into the realm of a God relating to a people. There's a whole other topic that we can get into around this, of how God is sovereign, and people can't turn to God unless he opens their eyes to let let them see them. And he's sovereign over that. But we're at time, and I don't want to go open that whole can of worms right now. What I want us to see is a God who has compassion on people and understands the need for justice and the corresponding need for mercy and who has torn down the curtain that separates God and humanity and let us enter in through the work of this one man, Jesus Christ. Think about not just all the other people of the earth right now, but think about yourself and what your personal response is to that knowledge. For what you've been given, that is what you are responsible for. God comes and he asks for an accounting of your life, of what you've been given. It's something of a diversionary tactic to say, but what about those people when... God is asking you, what about you? Because through you, maybe God is going to reach all of these other people or a lot of other people who otherwise would not have any way to hear the gospel. That is exactly what he did through Paul. Because Paul was an unexpected leader. Who was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. A head Jew who hated Gentiles and was righteous in his own eyes. And he is transformed 180 degrees and then he has a heart for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and he's righteous not in his own eyes. He becomes righteous in God's eyes and he considers his own works to be empty. And that's where he's been coming from. That's what he said in chapter 1. Remember it? I was the foremost of sinners. The foremost of blasphemers, persecutors, and insolent opponents. Timothy is something of an unexpected leader as well. He's somewhat sickly. He has to take uh, a little wine to calm his stomach. He's still very young, which was a a, a major uh, problem of authority in the ancient world. Youth was not looked on with respect. C.S. Lewis was an unlikely convert to Christianity, an atheist who came to belief by the uh, convincing, uh, or the work, the testimony of his his friend, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, fellow professor at Oxford, Rosaria Butterfield was a teacher of women's studies at a a top university in the United States, a practicing lesbian who turned away from that when she experienced the gospel through hospitality. By the love poured out to her by a pastor who wrote her a letter in response to an article she had written that got a lot of publicity. And when she got this letter, she had received... Dozens, if not hundreds, of letters, and she had two boxes one that was supportive and one that was angry. And this one letter she couldn't put in either box because it was from a Christian who was expressing love and yet who was a cha- challenging her position. C.S. Lewis, Rosaria Butterfield, other names are powerful testimonies. A good friend of mine is a pastor now who was an atheist and converted to Christianity in college. And there's something about those people who have come out of that position, the unexpected leaders, who have a powerful testimony to others now. Let me ask you, do you feel like there are places that you don't have a powerful testimony but that maybe God is calling you to be a leader in, to be a transformer, at least to tell the story of the gospel? In some way, the ways that God uses people are oftentimes surprising. The power that is in people is not usually in their strengths, but actually lies in their weaknesses. Because in our weaknesses, we can proclaim and show God's power all the more. Paul uses the imagery of a cracked vessel, and through those cracks, God shows how he puts the pottery back together. God shows his power to use those broken vessels. We're called to pray for leaders, to bear testimony to the salvation that we have, to go to the ends of the world, to pray for all people, to pray for our leaders over us. A salvation would be found and understood in the only place it can be found the mediator, Christ Jesus, who is also the sacrifice. Let's pray. Our good Father, we are thankful that you have opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel and given us a testimony, even a calling to be your ambassadors to tell this good news to all nations, that you show no preferential treatment based on color of skin or language or tribe or even education level or wealth or poverty, but that in Christ all of us are called children of God. Help us to live into that calling as your children, as members of your household, As your ambassadors and as your warriors, help us to enter into the battle of prayer and to find you there, the real God, who is able to change hearts and minds, even of the most hardened opponents of ours and yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.